Amen. All right. Very good. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verse 19. Genesis 49, verse 19. Amen. We're going to talk a little bit about the 12 tribes, and tonight we're going to do three tribes in one. We're going to talk about Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 19, it says, As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Okay, so these, these the next three tribes are kind of be straightforward a little bit. Uh, some of the other tribes we've dived into and gone a little deep and, and pulled out some stuff. We're going to do that with these, but these three tribes are not as lengthy as the others. So we're going to combine some tonight, and then in the next two weeks we'll talk about Joseph and Benjamin, spend, spend a little bit more time in these. So let's look at Gad here first. Okay, so backtrack. Remember, we have the 12 sons of Jacob plus a daughter. They've all kind of been, it's a crazy family. They have sold their brother Joseph into Egypt. They find out that he's still alive. They move down to Egypt. Uh, it redeems the whole family. Jacob, who's also called Israel, now they're in Egypt. Jacob is about to die. And so he calls all of his sons in and begins to prophesy over them about who they are, their legacy, their future. But through these prophecies, we're going to see not only what happens to that son, but what happens to the tribe, and ultimately how it really reflects us uh, as the church. So now we're in a, uh, a person called Gad. And so he pulls his sons, and he prophesies all three of these together, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So in Genesis chapter 30, verse 10, uh, that's where Gad is born. So it says, Leah's maid, Zilpha, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. So if you got your paper there, Gad's name, it means fortunate or good luck in Aramaic or Syrian, but it means warrior or soldier in Hebrew. And so he's the, se- okay, so he's the seventh son of Jacob. He's born to this maid, uh, Zilpah. And his name means fortunate or good luck. And that's what she says. She's how fortunate. And so she named him Gad. So his name in the Syrian. And now remember, Zilpha is not a Hebrew. And even uh, Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel and Leah, even them, both of them had some pagan ideology from their father. They really, they, uh, you remember Rachel, she hid a, an idol under her saddlebag and brought it in. So these guys, they're not full on with God. So they actually name him a Syrian name which means fortunate or uh, good luck. And we'll go on in his tents on the battlefield. Uh, is what it, Tents on the battlefield is his symbol. The stone uh, is an emerald. And so Jacob pulls this kid aside. Who's, his mom's named him fortunate. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 19, it says, As for Gad, raiders shall raid on him, but he will raid at their heels. Okay, that's the one verse. We're just going to look at this one verse and follow this whole thing through the whole whole deal. So, in this one verse, it says, Raiders shall raid him, and he will raid at their heels. 
Every word in there in the Hebrew is a reference to his name. So here's what his dad does. His mom has named him Fortunate but in the Syrian, but his dad takes that word in Hebrew, and it means warrior or troop or soldier. And so he says, as for Gad, in the Hebrew word, as for my son, warrior, warriors shall raid him, but he will warrior or raid at their heel. So four out of those six words are a form of his name. And one author says, if you wanted to really read it this way, it says, a troop of soldiers shall troop upon him, but he shall troop upon their heels. And some, so he's saying, my son's going to be harassed by people, but when they harass him, he's going to harass them back. Or if they attack him, he will end up attacking them back and chasing them away. I think it's important there is that what his mom spoke over him as a Syrian name for fortunate, his father took that word in the Hebrew and spoke into his life as a warrior or a soldier. And so he doesn't take that on. So look in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 20. So skip over some, some chapters. Okay, so Jacob is blessed his son. He says he's not just a fortunate son in Syrian. He's actually a warrior in Hebrew. And if somebody attacks him, he's going to chase them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 20, now the tribe, you know, Gad's died. He, uh, the tribe has come and followed Moses out of the Exodus. And now they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses prophesies over all the twelve tribes, and he comes to Gad. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 20, here's what he says. Of Gad, he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and he tears the arm, also the crown of his head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people, and he executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. Okay, so he says, Of Gad, blessed is the one who enlarges him. He's going to lie down like a lion. He's going to tear the arm, of also the crown of the head. Pause right there. He's saying, basically, he's okay if you don't mess with him. Maybe you know somebody like this. They're fine. They're like a big sleeping giant if you don't mess with them. But man, when you get on their bad side, they come out like ripping somebody's head off. Like, they're cool, they're calm, collected, they're an okay guy, or whatever. But man, when you, when you lay into them, just beware. They're going to kind of, kind of reminds me of a certain president we might have. But he, they, they retaliate even worse than, than so he says they're going to tear the arm, which is the, the strength of the person. And it says also the crown, they'll knock off the head, which is their authority or the, uh, their policy. And he says, and he's going to come with the leaders and he's going to execute justice, uh, and he says, for their ruler's portion was reserved. He's going to provide the first part for himself. And that's kind of important. So he says, when you attack him, he's, he, he's going to be a fine guy. He's just going to sit there. He's going to do nothing. But man, when you get on him, he's going to get on you even worse. And he will provide the first part for himself. And this is important because just in a few years, fast forward to the time where Moses has died, and we come to Joshua. And they're standing there at the promised land, and as soon as they get to the edge of the Jordan River, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, and Reuben come to Moses, and these guys have a lot of sheep, and they say, Moses, we already see the land on this side of the Jordan River. We don't really even care to go to the promised land. Can we just call this our land? This looks good for our livestock, and we enjoy where we are right now. You guys go ahead, cross the promised land. You guys take it all. Me more for you. We'll stay over here. You can have our part on that side. And man, it makes Moses and God like 
extremely, extremely angry. They're like, you're going to disappoint all your brothers. You're going to send us over there to fight for this land. And we went all this 40 years. God's going to kill a whole other generation of people just because you are giving. I mean, we are at the finish line, people. You're going to give up right now to take. You haven't even seen what the promised land looks like yet. You're giving up early on crossing this Jordan River, this new generation. And so they said, okay, 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 fine. We're not going to do that. But if you let us stay here, we will send our soldiers with you and help you take the promised land, and then y'all divide it. We'll come back across the Jordan and live here. And so Moses and God end up going along with that deal and saying, all right, y'all can stay on this side of the promised land, but you have to fulfill your promise to come fight with us. And so that's what happens. They get this land on the other side of the Jordan. They take it for livestock, and ultimately Moses' blessing from 33, chapter 33 of Deuteronomy is, comes to pass. He says, he provided the first part for himself. Manasseh, uh, Gad, along with Manasseh and Reuben, become one of the first tribes to take their part in the land. Now, here's, here's the tricky part. Let me get this slide working for you. Here's the tricky part with uh, what they've done, is they have isolated themselves across the Jordan River. And so sometimes you can't always cross this river across the Jordan. And so Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad are situated on the east side of the Jordan River. And where they are, they are only relying on themselves. They don't get a chance to always rely on the other tribes. So what happens is Gad often becomes oppressed. In fact, the Philistines at one time are attacking them uh, for many years. Even the uh, Assyrians, uh, the, sorry, the Moabites come in. If I can get this to work. Nope. I want to show you this map of where they are. We have all kinds of problems with technology this, this afternoon. <laughs> well, anyhow, they, they begin to find out that it's not such a good thing that what they've done. And so they get constantly oppressed. But here's the catch of that. They've decided to take this first part of the land for themselves which makes them oppressed, but at the same time, there we go, at the same time, it produces a warrior spirit in them. It's like as if you're constantly oppressed, they become constantly ready to fight at any moment. And so that goes in and fulfills what Jacob had said about his son. Now you see that green blur there, uh, just above the Dead Sea, Across from Benjamin, across this blue line, is Gad. Right between Manasseh and Reuben. It actually will be the place where Moses dies across from Jericho before they go into uh, the Promised Land. So, it's kind of a good and a bad thing. On one part, they jump the gun, take the land. Which is kind of bad. They isolate themselves, cause them to be attacked. But on the other side, the constant pressure of being attacked and alone on the front line to defend the whole nation, in a sense, from eastern invaders, Gad becomes not the fortunate son that his mom predicted, but the warrior that his dad predicted. Look in First uh, Chronicles chapter 5, verse 18. Let me tell you about their legacy real quick, and then we're going to move on to Asher. Okay, so here's their legacy. So they kind of jump the gun, get on the edge, it doesn't work out, but yet it also produces something in them. They learn about oppression, and they become warriors. 
In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 18 says, They were valiant men, men who bore shield and sword and shot with bow and were skillful in battle. And if you go on in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8, these guys, when David is on the run from Saul, and he finds this place called Ziklag, which is kind of in the um, enemy territory, they go to him and help him out in the wilderness. And it says that when, when they were with David, they were men of might and of war fit for battle. It says, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were as swift as does. And if you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, just go down to four, verse 14. Here's what it says about them. It says, one man in the tribe of Dan or of Gad, who was the least, was equal to a hundred regular men. And the greatest in Gad, as a warrior, was equal to a thousand men. And it says, these are the one who even crossed the Jordan River in the first month when it was overflowing all of its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. So these were some, I mean, these are your elite Navy SEAL, Army Ranger kind of guys. These guys are uh, top-notch military guys. And so they're even crossing, at one point they're crossing this Jordan River when it's flooded, which nobody does. They cross it and even... uh, take over all the enemies that were attacking uh, Israel on the other side. So, all of that being said, here's what happens, though. Even though constant oppression caused them to be warriors, and they took that fight back to the enemy, if you, get, if you attacked Gad, you were going to be attacked back and ran off. But that one decision they made years ago to take the land early would ultimately result in this. They would be the first tribe to go into exile because they're on the front line. Gad is, one of the, is the first tribe, along with Manasseh and Reuben, to leave when Assyria, the nation, uh, the empire, comes to Israel. And Israel, God has given up on Israel because the ten tribes in the north have fallen into apostasy. They've turned to other gods. Uh, they've fallen away from him. Despite that warrior spirit in Gad, Gad had fell prey to idolatry, perhaps, trying to find fortune in themselves, perhaps because of that uh, jump-the-gun mentality that they also had, they become the first ones to fall into exile uh, when the empire of Assyria comes. So here's, some, here's something I, I want to just really apply with them. It's simply this. I think if you're going to take one lesson from Gad, it's going to be, be ready. Uh, be ready. We learn... I think you can learn from Gad, like he said, his first name was Fortunate, and his Hebrew name was Warrior. It is don't trade fortunate things for that warrior mentality. For instance, uh, he could have stuck, stuck with his mom's name, and he could have been all about fortune and fame and all this kind of stuff, but yet he did take on the embodiment of a warrior spirit. And the Bible tells us to be more than conquerors in Christ, and that's great. But it was fortune, though that ultimately kept him outside the promised land. He saw that land was pleasing to the eye. And that's the same thing even them did in the garden. They saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And they did not hold on to the promise God had. And so even though Gad had this warrior spirit and wanted to be all that his dad said that he would be, that, that prophecy of his mom to be a fortune and follow fortune Somewhere deep inside, I think even the best of us, even the most powerful, prayed-up, spiritual warfare kind of people, 
There, there is always that secret desire, that secret sin, that, that fleshly nature that we're all fighting against to say, don't go for pleasure, fight the good fight. And that's where Gad fell. And it was that one seed where you think, well, that was years ago. You know, that sin was way back when, when my grandpappy, you know, for them it would have been, you know, my great ancestors took this land too early. Uh, even though it helped put it, produce a warrior spirit in us, there was a seed of that that stayed with that tribe all the way to the very end. And ultimately, the consequence of that decision, you know, we've talked in this class multiple times, it says, you know, be sure your sin will find you out. There are consequences. Even after repentance, there's consequences for sin. Even, you know, again, if we make bad decisions in our marriage or, you know, we do things and and get arrested, those things are, you can't, there are things you cannot undo. There are going to be consequences. And Gad as best as they became and as powerful as they became and as much of a warrior as they became, it led to their exile ultimately in the end. And it was learning through difficulties, though. Uh, I think you can look at them and say, man, even though this thing, we look at that bad part of their life, but in the good part of their life, you say, they learned through oppression how to fight the enemy. And I think uh, that's something to be said of them. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And I think if we were going to say, hey, as a Christian, to apply the lesson of God would be simply this. Always be ready and allow those experiences of spiritual warfare, spiritual attack, defeats in our life to in turn make us more of an overcomer, develop that more of a a grit about us. Because sometimes we can easily just be, oh, I'm attacked, I'm depressed, I'm down, nobody likes me, woe is me, where is God? And we can kind of be depressing. Gad wasn't that way. He kind of just buckled up and took it on, man. He just came out with it. And... Peter says, hey, sometimes it's adversity. Sometimes it's suffering with Christ. That's not a popular thing to talk about today. But sometimes it's suffering with Christ that's going to cause you uh, to get more glory in God. And that's Gad. His oppression allowed him to be a mightier man of God. But it was the, that, that prophecy, that dual nature inside of himself, the Syrian prophecy of being a fortunate son, Versus his dad's prophecy of being a warrior. And ultimately we see that um, that secret sin wore out. Okay. Any questions on Gad? Real quick. Good? No? All right. Here we go. Let's go to uh, the next one. And we're going to kind of bring it all together in the end anyhow. If I can get this to go again. There we go. Let's talk about Asher. How many people want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy in America, right? This is happy is a good thing. We want to be happy. Come on, be happy. Asher, Genesis chapter 30, verse 12. Let's look there for a second. Genesis 30, verse 12 says this, Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Leah said, Happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. So remember, like I said, we've got Jacob and his two wives and his two wives' maids. And whenever his wives couldn't produce uh, children, they gave Jacob their maid. And so Leah was competing for how many kids she and her maid could have versus Rachel and her maid. Again, Jerry Springer show. Here we go. This is a crazy family. Um, anyhow, for today. 
And so she says, oh, I'm, I'm happy, man. She had another, my maid had another boy, and here we go. Let's name him Asher, or happy, or good luck, or fortune, or blessed. So happy, Asher means happy. He's the eighth son, uh, born to Leah's maid Zilpha. He's the full brother of Gad. His symbol is a tree for food. His stone uh, is the black onx on the priestly breastplate. And so we fast forward, and Asher grows up, and he becomes one of the 12 sons, and his descendants uh, are getting multiplied, and he's in Egypt with his brothers, and his father's about to die, and so his daddy pulls him in. And what does his dad say in Genesis 49, verse 20? Genesis 49, verse 20, it says, As for Asher, his food shall be rich, or fat, and he will yield royal dainties, royal treats, royal goodies. He will yield royal dainties. What will come of Asher, and we'll talk about it in a second, is that from this prophecy, Asher, who is happy, Jacob is saying, hey, your abundance is going to be fat or rich or plentiful, and you will produce royal gourmet food. How many people want that prophecy over your life? <laughs> you will enjoy royal gourmet food. You know, that's what Brother Ron married Miss Doris. You know, you have royal gourmet food uh, for the rest of your life. And, that's, and actually, this is what Asher becomes known for. Did you know this? Uh, we got all these warriors and all these kings. and je- Asher, hey, we're known for being chefs. We're known for that good T-bone steak or those royal dainties. And so they become, and in Solomon's time, if you fast forward... Every, um, every tribe in Solomon's time would take one month. There's 12 tribes, 12 months. Each month, not only did a tribe play worship in the temple uh, and rotate who would play worship that month, they would also provide food for the king. And probably, if you were the king, you would have probably enjoyed Asher's month, right? If they're, they're known for their gourmet food, on that month of the year, that'd be the good month in the house of the king. And so that was Asher's uh, what he was known for. And so Asher uh, gets known for that. Jacob prophesies over his son, hey, your life's going to be rich, it's going to be abundant, it's going to be fat, you're going to have royal uh, treats coming out of your, your lineage. And Moses, later on, after the 12 tribes go through the wilderness, they get to the end, Deuteronomy 33 again. So if you notice, we're just looking really at two chapters here, or three chapters, Genesis 30, Genesis 49, and Deuteronomy 33. Each of those prophecies is a prophecy of their birth, there's a prophecy at Jacob's death, and there's a prophecy over them at Moses' death. So each son has three prophecies, all right? So Deuteronomy 33, verse 24, is Moses' prophecy. He says, Of Asher, more blessed than sons is Asher. Maybe saying he's going to have a lot of children. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Now, that's a weird saying for us today. I don't know how many people go home tonight and dip your feet in oil. Maybe some of you ladies, you put lotion on your feet. Kind of the same idea here. Um, to be lavish, to, to have a richness of oil. Now, he's talking about olive oil here. You're not putting motor oil on your feet here, guys. It's olive oil. It's good for health care. It's good for cooking. It's good for lighting. It's good for anointing people. Olive oil. It says, Your locks will be iron and bronze according to your days, so will your leisure walk be. Basically saying, you're going to be rich, you're going to be secure, you're going to be at peace, and you're going to have strength. Now, I don't know about you, I'll take that prophecy any day, right? You're going to have leisure, you're going to have strength, you're going to have security, you're going to eat royal treats, it's going to be awesome, right? I would love to have the prophecy of Asher. Uh, 
And in fact, if you look at their attendance uh, in the two sentences that happened, they start this journey off with Moses at 41,500. By the end of this, the second census, they're at 53,400. I mean, talking, you know, over a 10,000 increase. So who wouldn't increase in that? You're in leisure, you're prosperity, you're having children. He says he blesses them with more sons. And so what happens is, whereas Reuben, Manasseh, and Gad are on the other side, Asher goes far to the northwest. The Holy Spirit, when lots are pulled with Joshua, shoots Asher up to the north. They're at the Mediterranean coast. And what can you do on the coast? You can trade. You can barter. You can be with the ships and the ports. Not only that, but where Asher gets uh, is a valley called the Valley of Olives today. And this is tons of olive groves. And again, here's, here's looking at this scripture and looking how the Bible works. Moses doesn't know at the time of his prophecy, nor does Jacob, because Jacob's going to die. He doesn't know where this tribe's going to be in a few, I mean, 450 years, you know. Uh, God knew, God prophesied, you're going to have oil and richness and abundance. Moses prophesies, the Holy Spirit pulls lots with Joshua. Nobody's just choosing this, the Holy Spirit. And so it, it, all of it's fulfilled. All three prophecies are fulfilled. Uh, happiness goes with this. Asher's name is Happy. He is prophesied rich royal dainties with his dad. He's prophesied oil and abundance and favor with Moses. And the place that he gets is the coast of the Mediterranean, which is known for olive groves. And he begins to produce most of the olive oil in Israel. And it says that he's going to be favored by his brothers. Why? Because he ends up producing most of the olive oil that all of his brothers need. But here's the catch. I think about America a lot when I think about this, this tribe. Asher, up to the north, very prosperous, wealthy, making the king's delicacies, he becomes happy, just like his name. But if you look in Judges, chapter 1, verse 31, it says that Asher never overcame the Canaanites or the Phoenicians that were in those ports. They never had true victory within. In fact, they begin to sacrifice, whereas Gad's really military-based because he's on the outskirts, right? But he has this fortune thing inside of him. He's, he's quick to jump the gun. Asher is lax, reserved, doesn't really fight the enemy within. In fact, he sacrifices military power for his agricultural power and along with Gilead and Dan, Asher is one of the tribes that when Deborah calls for a war and judges, they don't answer. Remember, the, the Midianites are coming from within, uh, or Sisera, sorry. Sisera is coming from within this Canaanite force. And Deborah and Barak call on, hey, we need soldiers, we need soldiers, we need to fight. Asher's right here. And, in, and they're fighting in Zebulun and Issachar and in Naphtali, which is bordering Asher, by the way, okay? So Zebulun, Issachar, and Asher, just to the uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, that's where they're fighting Sisera. Deborah's calling, help, help, help. Asher, just the next state over. They don't answer. They don't come. Their brothers, just next door, are getting killed. And they say, well, we're a little busy here. We got our food, we got to prepare, we got the things we got going on, we got all of our comfort, all of our pleasure in life, we got our TV. You know, I know there's a fight going on, I know that people are dying and everything, but, you know, I kind of got to wash me right now. 
These things aren't going to happen on their own. And so Asher doesn't fight Sisera. But here's what Sisera... Sisera was the inside enemy. Sometimes... Let me say it this way. The demons within sometimes are harder to fight than the demons without, right? It's the internal sin sometimes we have a hard time dealing with. But when Gideon calls in just the next chapter, and Gideon says, hey, Asher, in Judges, I think it's Judges chapter 6. Yeah, Judges chapter 6. Eastern raiders are coming from the Armenian side, from, from the east, And Gideon calls, and then when the outside enemy comes in, guess what? Asher rises up and fights. But he's not fighting. He didn't fight the Canaanites and the Phoenicians when he settled. He didn't fight the inside enemies when Deborah called. But when Gideon called about outside enemies, he fought. I find that unique and interesting. Just a few years later, why are you not fighting these guys, but you're fighting these external guys? Maybe there's bartering going on. I don't know. We, I don't, it's kind of a mystery. I just look at that and say, wow, it's, it's, sometimes it's easier to fight those external things in our life, but when it comes looking on the inside, those things really we don't want to deal with. And I think about Asher and that him and his comfort and his pleasure and his entertainment. He's not really dealing with the internal issues, but he'll fight the external issues. When it comes to dealing, somebody's going to come from without and take away his comfort, he's going to fight that. You're right. You take my TV, my entertainment, my television. You're going to take my house and you're going to take my freedom. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll deal with you. But as far as the internal stuff, you know, I'm kind of okay. It's not really affecting me. It might be affecting them over there, but it ain't affecting me. That's Asher. In fact, because of this lackadaisical attitude, Asher doesn't provide one single military leader or one single judge. In fact, by the time of David... When David picks leaders from every tribe to be represented in his capital, he doesn't have anybody to choose from, even from the tribe of Asher. And David's list of leaders that he pulls from across the entire country, he doesn't have a leader represented for Asher. That's interesting. Because by the time of David, they've already lost military significance. They don't have any, any significance when it comes to rulers to represent them. But here's one glimmer of hope for Asher. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, it says, When Hezekiah, and now the two kingdoms have split, ten tribes are in the north, one with those being Asher. They fall into apostasy. There's pagan ideology across the whole land, right? And only Judah and Benjamin remain loyal. Simeon has divided into Judah because they've just dissolved. So there's Judah and Benjamin in the south. Some tribes from every tribe begin to come to Judah. Levites begin to come to Judah and say, Hey, we're not dealing with this apostasy. We're coming back. It's a holy remnant. Hezekiah comes in as a good king and he cleans out the temple, finds the law. He calls for a national Pentecost day, a national Passover day. He says, let's get ourselves purified before God. He sends messengers across the border of the two countries, sends them to every tribe and says, hey, I know we're two countries. I know we've had our differences, but we need to come back to God. And some from Asher answer the call and go all the way from the top, the northernmost northern tribe to the southernmost tribe to Judah. And I personally believe some of them probably stayed. We don't have a record of that. But I just have this, I, I think that when revival happened, I just believe that those faithful ones, some, some from every tribe somewhere have remained faithful. And you can think about this, and I think the, the thing to think about with Asher 
the lesson here is be fruitful. We don't want to mistake being happy for being fruitful. Asher, his name means happy. And sometimes, especially in this country, we can find our happiness in our prosperity. And that is a blessing from God. But it's really easy for that blessing to be a curse as well. And what is what happens with Asher? That blessing, which was a blessing from the Lord, turned into his own worst downfall, which I think is what's happening in the American church today. Our comfort, our pleasure, our power, our economy has turned us inward. The church has turned inward. It's become a me-centered culture, a self-centered culture. And even though people around the world are dying and going to hell because the enemy's attacking, it's not really affecting me, and I'm not really willing to deal with the demons on the inside, the sin issues on the inside, until somebody starts taking away my comfort. And that's Asher. And so they begin to look as the, as the true prosperity in material things. But we know, number one, true prosperity is not material things, that sometimes leads to captivity, which it did for Asher. But if we want happiness, uh, we need to look at what the real prosperity is. And what is that? Asher's oil. What does that oil represent in Scripture? Somebody, what's the oil represent? The Holy Spirit, right? Oil was their number one export. And I think if you want to get serious and say, what's the real fruitfulness of Asher? It should have been the exporting of the Holy Spirit. And that's if you think about it in Christian terms. They were supposed to give oil to their brothers. And what does the Bible say about the oil? It says that there is an oil of gladness, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, that the oil of the Holy Spirit, Psalms 45, 7, you have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or joy above your fellows. And instead of turning to material things for true happiness, like His name says, Asher should have looked and said, man, my true prosperity did not come from the labor of my own hands here and the material wealth of oil and these royal treats that I'm producing. It came because God gave me this blessing. And I am called, just like I'm supposed to, to give this oil away. And if we're going to look at true happiness in the Christian life, it should be the same way. True happiness in my life is not going to come because God has blessed me with all these material things. Well, that is great. The biggest thing God's blessed me with was the oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit. And like Asher, he says, your brothers are going to be favored by you. You're going to give them uh, royal treats. The best thing we can give away is the Holy Spirit. Let me say amen. Amen. All right? The best thing we can be fruitful with. If you want to be truly happy, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Asher's downfall was that he thought his happiness was coming from internal pleasure. But instead, God had told him, you are to give this oil away. That's, that's the happiness that God had ordained. And I think Asher failed to do that. I think the modern church is the same way. We can fail. We can look for happiness in all the wrong places, but the true happiness is only found in the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the best thing to do with him is give him away. That's true fruit. Give the, the, see, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of those, right? That's not for you. It's for you to go in and produce out, right? It's not for you to keep. God's not in the business of making us happy. He makes us happy because we are fulfilling His commission, right? We are the pass-through. And you think about a, a vine and a branch and all of that, a tree. That apple tree does not eat its own apples, right? 
We're the pass-through. God uses us, fills us with the nutrients of the Holy Spirit, the nutrients of Jesus Christ, and it produces good fruit, which is for the feeding of the nations. And that's what Asher was supposed to do. So, number one, Gad, you should learn to not fall for fortunate of immediate gratification, but in the midst of uh, opposition, allow God to produce that warrior spirit in you. Don't choose. There are two prophecies, I think, over every single one of us, two natures in all of us, one to go for fortune, one to fight. And I think uh, Gad lost that. He needed to continue to fight the good fight to the very end. Asher... His mom had prophesied that he'd be happy, but his dad said the way you're going to be happy is that you'll produce these things to give to the nation or to your brothers, to the tribes. Asher turned inward focus for his own happiness. He lost that, went to exile. And us as a Christian, we should serve, uh, serve the king. I think about when he was given Solomon those treats. Think about this. Once a year, Asher had worked all year long for one month to serve the king that one month his royal treats. Think about it. And how much do I purposefully give my very best to King Jesus? That's Asher. That probably, I mean, his name means happy. To, to make someone who is a chef, you know, what, what their goal is for people to enjoy their food, right? A chef does not make his own food and say, ooh, my food's so good, let me eat it. What is he? He's, he's there producing it, and when people taste it, he gets the accolade. He gets the rejoicing in, wow, that... Food connoisseur really enjoyed my whatever, right? And Asher all year long would work to get to that one month to serve his best dish to the king. And that makes me challenged to say, man, I want to be happy. My, my, whatever gifts and pleasures God has given me, let, whatever blessing he's given me, let me in turn be one who serves at the table of the king, right? There's another lesson from Asher. All right, let's move along because we don't have a few minutes here. Naphtali. Naphtali. Genesis chapter 30, verse 8. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. And she named this son Naphtali. So this is Rachel's son. She names him Struggle or Wrestler. All right. He's the sixth son of Jacob. He represents a deer or a gazelle. And we'll talk about that in a second. He's got a reddish brown color of stone. And tradition, Jewish tradition says that at the moment... When they realize Joseph is alive, remember the twelve brothers, they, or the, the brothers sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Uh, they come back and they find, oh my gosh, Joseph is alive. Jewish tradition says, and this may or may not be true, that Naphtali ran all the way back to Egypt to tell his father that his son, who was dead, is now alive. And so Jacob prophesies in Genesis 49, verse 21. He says, Naphtali is a doe let loose or a gazelle let loose, a female deer. He gives beautiful words. All right? So he, Jacob is saying, you're going to be speedy, you're going to be agile, you're going to be swift, and you're going to give a good word. All right? So that, okay, let's pull that in. Let's look at Moses' blessing in Deuteronomy 33. All right? So he's going to be swift like a deer. He's going to give beautiful words. Moses says, uh, by the time the tribe grows, at the end of the exile, uh, the wilderness experience... Deuteronomy 33, he says, Naphtali, he says, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea and the south. So Moses prophesies uh, with this tribe, and it doesn't really reference Jacob so much, but it kind of works out here. If you go north of the Sea of Galilee, that is the hill country, 
of the Galilee region. That is Naphtali. So you've got Issachar and Zebulun just to the south, which is on the end of the um, uh, Valley of Armageddon we've talked about, which leads right up north is going to be Naphtali. So you've got Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, and Issachar, all kind of in the same northern part of Israel. But Naphtali takes the area of the hill country we call Galilee. All right? And it's a prosperous area. I got to go there uh, a few years ago. It's hilly. Uh, it's got a, I mean, they can grow fruit. Uh, I, I, don't quote me on this, but I'm, I'm, I believe my tour guide said they can grow 12 types of fruit trees there. It's very, it doesn't look that way. You wouldn't think that, but in the springtime, it's very fertile. It's all green, but then it turns all the desert looking uh, in the summer. But there's the, something about the soil in Israel, because of all of the nutrients from the mountain above it and the Jordan River, uh, there's just a lot of types of things they can grow. It's very uh, productive, all right? And this is where Naphtali gets. And so that's where uh, Moses prophesies it's going to be full of the blessing. You're going to have favor, take possession of the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and this tribe uh, takes the hills. It's a well-watered area. And here's their legacy. They end up becoming famous, just like Jacob said, for being runners. I guess it runs in the family. They all became great runners. They were good to answer the call. Uh, when we talk about the story of Deborah and Barak and Judges, Barak uh, was one of the tribe. He was of the tribe of Naphtali. And so Naphtali answers their own call. 10,000 men show up with Deborah and Barak to fight Sisera, the Canaanite general. Uh, and Deborah writes a song. Beautiful words about Naphtali. They said, along with Naphtali and Zebulun, uh, it says that they would lay down their life even to death for the sake of their brothers. And so Naphtali is running. When you think about Barak running and charging to battle, you've got Zebulun and Naphtali running right after Barak, uh, ready to fight the enemy. When the God calls them, they're there to answer. And they're swift, they're runners. Uh, they respond twice to Gideon's call uh, in Judges 6-7, through 7, and they end up also supporting David with troops when he sets up his capital. But here's the deal. They too, just like all the other ten tribes, something happens. They get lax. They're not as swift maybe as they used to be. Uh, they're not as cunning as they used to be. Maybe the favor of all their prosperity does the same way. And this is where, uh, next to Dan and Naphtali, all these areas uh, begin to turn inward. Remember, Dan puts an idol in the north. Dan leaves his place, moves to the north next to Naphtali, uh, and they build idolatry. Naphtali is one of those places, and Isaiah would prophesy. He would prophesy that Naphtali would fall, and it would be turned over into the land of the Gentiles. But he says, but he says there's coming a day when the land of Naphtali and Zebulun in the land of the Gentiles, which at that time it wasn't Gentiles, but he says in the land of the Gentiles, which is in Aphtali and Zebulun, he says a light will shine in the darkness. Now what is that talking about? We talk about where did Jesus start his ministry? He starts his ministry in Naphtali, Zebulun, and Issachar in the Galilee region. And so if you want to think about, think about the name, he's, uh, his name, he, he's a doe, he's swift, uh, he's struggling, he's wrestling, he's fighting, he's running. He's going to have beautiful words. And if you look at this, Jesus, who it's prophesied the Gentiles will be here, there's going to be a great light and dark struggle. It says that 
there's going to be beautiful words come out of Naphtali. He's going to run swift. And you know there in three years, Jesus is circuit touring the beautiful words, the Beatitudes over and over again in the area of Naphtali. And he's preaching the good news, beautiful words. Isn't that crazy that, that all this would come to the pass? Yeah, go ahead. Ah, that's a good question. Um, hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's where Jesus recruits his, most of his disciples um, from Isaiah. I'll give you, say, five, six hundred years uh, from Isaiah's prophecy, maybe. Um, Jesus carries the beautiful words swiftly. But here's the thing. He also gives a woe to all of its major cities. To woe to Chorazim, to Bethsaida, to Capernaum. You've heard those names before, maybe in the Gospels. He gives a woe because they're unrepentant. They've become lax. And I think if you were to apply something from Naphtali, it's going to be this as we wrap up. Uh, There's a struggle. Let me go back here. There's a struggle. There's a struggle between light and dark. There's a struggle in the land. There's a struggle to move fast and swiftly. And, and one time, Naphtali is swift to answer the call anytime there's a struggle. But for some reason, later on in life, they slowed down. They stopped fighting. They got taken over by the enemy. They were deported into exile until the day that Jesus comes, speaks those beautiful words, and quickly proclaims the gospel. He raises up a, a generation of men from that, that area. And if you were to look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How will they call on Him and who they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. I want you to think about something real quick and we close. Just as Naphtali heard of his brother's resurrection, they thought Joseph was dead but was now alive. He ran to his father to bring the good news that his brother was dead. In the same way Paul is saying, guys, we should be running swiftly on our feet, like Naphtali, bringing the good news, the beautiful news, that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. Isn't the Bible awesome? It just all ties everything together. And you couldn't, and if you're here and somebody's thinking, well, man wrote that, there's no way. All of these prophecies from all these generations, from all these people, were beautifully linked together. And here's this swift runner who should have been bringing good news and fighting the struggle, lost it, and then Jesus comes in and preaches that good news. And Paul's saying, guys, we need to be swiftly bringing this good news. There is a struggle. People are dying going to hell. There is a struggle for light and darkness. We've got the good news. Now, how beautiful are the feet, like from Naphtali, Swift as a doe. His feet are like hind's feet. David talks about that. My feet are like hind's feet. Uh, Deer's feet, like a gazelle. Going over those mountains, overcoming the struggle to give the good news. So from Gad, you can say, always be ready. Be more than a conqueror. Put on the full armor of God. Be sober. Be alert. The devil is prowling around. Stay ready. Don't fall to fortune. Continue to, in the middle of oppression, be strong in the Lord. Be an overcomer. From Gad... Or so that's from Gad. From Asher, you can think that happiness is not truly in this world. 
happiness is in the oil of joy, the oil of gladness that is not meant for you to take and be self-focused, but for you to give away. And that was Asher's lesson. And from Naphtali is that we should be running with the good news of Jesus Christ, struggling. Paul says that it's, it's like a race. It's a, an endurance thing. It, he's, he's running. He's leaving beside uh, every entanglement, everything we're moving fast, leaving everything behind us to run this race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Even Peter uh, and his, uh, his epistles are, are leading the same way, that we are to run and struggle and fight this fight of faith to bring the good news uh, that Jesus is alive. And there's three quick lessons um, from Gad and Asher and Naphtali. Amen?